Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. And listen to the next part that you oftentimes don't see on the little crocheted plaque at Mardell or the Family Christian Bookstore. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Do you see how glorifying God happens? Being still and knowing that he's God. And here's another Hebrew paraphrase that you're only going to get here from me, the guy that's not studied Hebrew. Here's the paraphrase of be still and know that I'm God. It's God saying to you and to me, shh. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to the program, and Merry Christmas to you and your loved ones. Today, you'll be listening to a special bonus episode, which I'm offering to say thank you for listening to the Restoring the Soul podcast. Preceding my message, I've included a special Christmas song that you won't want to miss. It's written and performed by my friends, Nashville singer-songwriters Andy Gullihorn and Jill Phillips. It's one of my favorites and a hilarious arrangement of a Christmas classic. You can discover more of Andy Gullihorn and Jill Phillips on iTunes, including their album, Christmas. Also on today's bonus episode is a message I gave on November 1st at Denver Seminary Student Chapel. It's entitled, Less is More, and I'm sharing it with you because especially at this time of year when holiday busyness can take stress to another level, we all need to be reminded about what is most crucial for our soul to thrive. Finally, I'd like to invite you to reflect on how this podcast has benefited you throughout the first season. Perhaps you were enlightened about your need for solitude by listening to my conversation with Dallas Willard. Maybe my conversation with Paul Young gave you hope that your marriage could be restored. It may be that my discussion with Crystal Renault empowered you to talk to someone about your sexual brokenness. For all one knows, maybe you were struggling with whether or not God loves you, and my exchange with Ian Morgan Cron brought you hope and reminded you that you are loved. In short, if this podcast has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting this podcast with a one-time year-end gift? The cost of producing our show is about $600 a month, or $7,200 a year, but gifts of any amount are appreciated, and all gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, simply visit our ministry website at www.restoringthesoul.com. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll find a Donate button. Just click there and follow the instructions. Enjoy this bonus episode of Restoring the Soul and Merry Christmas.
just like I You know I don't ask for much I thought you'd like a unique gift I usually like the fact that you try Something at a bargain price Still a new toilet brush I told you it's a unique gift Isn't quite what I had in mind If I don't come in I might die Wish this was the worst Baby it's bad out here Oh but it's not your fault No fun to be had out here I wish I knew on the TV now Can I take your hat It's cold as Well I should have said no, no, no It's time sir. for me to watch the closer Just think of all those times that I tried I can't even feel my inside You really can't stay Baby don't hold out But it's cold Think we should fill this section with some witty banter? No. You simply must go. Baby, it's cold outside. The answer is oh, no. Oh, darling, it's cold outside. Your welcome has been. I need you to let me in. So very warm. Just look out the window at this store. The kids are gonna be suspicious. Man, those brownies look. was a 60-year-old pastor who came to my ministry called Restoring the Soul. We do two-week soul care intensives with Christian leaders. And um, Richard had a Master of Divinity, and he had a Doctor of Ministry from a very fine seminary in the Front Range of Colorado. He came to me, and, and I didn't know a lot about what was going on with him, but as, as I did what counselors do, and I said, so how can I be of help, he just, he just jumped right in. And, you know, I wrote a book about porn addiction and about my own recovery from that, and I've, I've taught on soul care, and I wasn't prepared for what he said. How can I be of help? He goes, I don't know God. And at first I thought, okay, one of these liberals, you know, who can go through seminary, you know, and then not really know Christ. And I soon realized that, that he was a man who had, you know, all of the, the right doctrine. I said, tell me what you mean. You, you don't know God. And he said, 
I've gone to seminary, I've got the credentials, these are the churches that I've pastored. I even knew one of them, and it was a large church in, a, in another metropolitan area. And, and he said, my whole life I've tried to glorify God, but I don't know God. And something inside of me went, well, I don't know what he means. I, I should do my best counseling, reflective listening and say, so I hear you saying that. But something inside of me actually knew what he was talking about. Because if you were here yesterday, and I, I'm just assuming that, that most of you weren't, I shared about my own epic fail. And there's failures, and then there's epic failures. And epic failures are not just really, really big failures, but failures that are part of God's epic story. The failure that's, that's never terminal, but the failure that leads to life. And my own epic failure, here's the short story of it, I was abused uh, about age 4 through 16 in an alcoholic home, became addicted to pornography when I was 8, um, dealt with my, quote, sexual addiction in a lot of different forms, but married three years at the highest level of infidelity, adultery, pornography addiction, and acting out in 1994. I came home from work, and I got caught in a lie, and my double life came spilling out. That was my epic failure. And it was out of that context of God over the last 22 years saving and redeeming my marriage and, and, and walking to very deep places of brokenness in my own heart that when that pastor said to me, I don't know God, something inside of me went, yeah, I think I know what you mean. And as we had the conversations and I said, tell me more, and as I, as I, as I um, heard his story, it was the story of this man who his entire passion was to glorify God. And he had done everything right. He had crossed all the theological, ecclesiological T's and I's. And yet something within him was undeveloped. And he had never connected all of the outer activity of his ministry with his inner life. Now please hear me. I'm not saying, nor was he saying, that he wasn't saved. He said, I don't have any question that when I die that I'm going to be with the Lord for eternity. But he said, I'm not sure I'm really going to enjoy it. And I'm not sure that I'm going to, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm going to actually recognize Jesus if he walked into the room. Because my whole life has been focused on the outer world. So between Richard's story and my story this morning, I want to just share with you three very, very obvious points for people in a seminary. And yet I hope that as I share these three obvious points, that there's something about how I share them, and in the context of what I share, that you might be provoked a little bit, that maybe this is pushing you in a little bit of a different way, and maybe thinking a little bit deeper about these obvious points. The first obvious point is this. As I talked with Richard, and as I walked on my own journey, discovering that brokenness is a gift to be opened, as opposed to something that is to be pushed away and kept at bay, Last Monday, a week ago yesterday, I had the opportunity to spend uh, just over an hour with Chancellor Gordon MacDonald. I do a podcast called Restoring the Soul. You can find that at restoringthesoul.com, and, and um, Chancellor MacDonald is going to be on the upcoming podcast. And we were talking about brokenness and the brokenness in his life, and, and he said, the Christian church doesn't believe in brokenness. We don't believe in a gospel of brokenness. He said, we believe in a gospel of bestness. And so it's out of that context of Richard and my story and that idea that I present to you the idea that we were created for union with God. Obvious point, right? I mean, if you were, if you were to be asked one question 
Before you graduated Denver Seminary, whether you're a counseling student, a divinity student, or something in between, fill in this sentence, right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. All you good Reformed people. I was a Presbyterian and a Presbyterian elder for a couple of years. I don't believe that anymore. So on the day after Reformation Day, I'm standing in a seminary saying, I don't believe that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I'm being a little bit cute, but I believe that the chief end of man and woman is communion with God, union with God, oneness with God. And now here's the rub. When we live in union and communion with God, we glorify Him. But we get it backwards. I remember as a young Christian, literally at Young Life Leadership Camps, down on my knees, God, at the end of this leadership camp, I just want to be totally sold out to you, God. I just want to glorify you with all of my life. And then we'd all get together and we'd count to three. And on three, please do this with me. We're all going to glorify God on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Oh, praise be to Jesus. Now, I'm being a little bit facetious, but glorifying God can be something that you do and you can say, praise the Lord, all my inmost being, praise His holy name, Psalm 103. And God is glorified by that. But please hear that union, communion, unity, and oneness is what we are created for. And in ministry, the easiest thing to do in the world is to confuse Christian activity, Christian ministry, even singing worship songs, which I love to do, even reading and studying Scripture, it's easy to confuse all of that with union with God. The second point is simply union with God is not something that we must attain. And this is where if I was to, to teach a semester-long class at a seminary, and I've done that here in the past. I'd love to unpack this idea. Union with God is not something we are to attain. First of all, how many of you have ever heard someone say, and it's not just in these stereotypical fundamentalist churches, but little Johnny was sinning, and I told him, imagine if Jesus walked into the room when you were doing that. With the idea that Jesus is outside of him, and that if Jesus walked in, he would be terribly ashamed and that he wouldn't do those things. As opposed to, assuming if little Johnny is a Christian, that Jesus lives inside of him. And it's not the presence of Jesus like a patrol officer with a ticket book that's going to write us a ticket if we do the wrong thing. Martin Laird, who is a Catholic uh, a priest and professor at Villanova University, has said that in regard to this idea that we are united with Christ and it's not something that we need to attain, Laird says that Christians are like people fishing for minnows while standing on the back of a whale. Most of my Christian life, I've been fishing for minnows. God, let me experience you. God, let me, let, let me know you more. God, let me glorify you. And it's all out there. It's something that I've got to do to bring him in as opposed to the fact that Christ is within me. All of these wonderful verses, Philippians 2, if you have any uh, comfort from being united with Christ, 
The famous verse, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's a whole paradigm shift when we begin to shift the model from the goal of our life is what we do for God to the goal of our life is to, um, to, to live out of a fullness inside of me. And I didn't bring it with me today, but sometimes when I speak, I have two different spigots. And the model or the, the word picture for this is if you think of a spigot coming off of the wall that you'd attach a hose to. Many of us live the Christian life like behind the brick wall where the spigot is that there is a cesspool. Because Jeremiah 17.9 says that our hearts are desperately wicked and, and, and they can't be trusted and, and who knows them. And what's coming out of that faucet is sin. And so the goal of the Christian life is to turn the faucet off. And that's what a good Christian life is. But if it's true that Christ lives within us and we don't need to work up any sense of connecting with God, we don't have to work up a sense of being close to Him, we don't have to work up a sense of pursuing God because He's not running from us like a, like a criminal running from a police officer who's in hot pursuit, but we can just literally breathe and unite with Him and pay attention to Him. That metaphor becomes not turning the spigot off but behind the brick wall where that spigot is, there is a reservoir of living water. And our job in the Christian life is to open up that spigot. And the job of pastors and theologians and preachers and counselors and spiritual directors is to realize that you're no longer defined by your darkness. You're no longer defined by your sinfulness. You are defined by the light of Christ and that what is inside of us is a reservoir of living water that Jesus promises if you're thirsty and you come to him with that thirst, and thirst is just another word for brokenness, right? We can think of thirst as thirst is what awesome Christians have when you really hunger and thirst for God. But thirst is a place of need. Hunger is a place of your stomach growling. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And Jesus says, if you come to me with that kind of thirst, guess what? Streams of living water are going to flow from within you. And by this he meant the Holy Spirit. Not if you come to me with your thirst, and if you study your Bible, and if you memorize enough scripture, and if you listen to enough Chris Tomlin songs, then what's going to happen is the water behind the brick wall where the spigot is, is eventually because God drops in a couple of chlorine tablets and purifies the water, then kind of, sort of, maybe your life will amount to something for the kingdom of God. No, it's about opening up that faucet. I think there's something inside of us, even in our preaching and theology, I know I've been guilty of preaching this way, that sin separates us from God. How many of you have heard that or preached that to believers? Well, if I get angry at my wife, that makes her feel unsafe with me, if my trauma gets triggered and, and I start reacting instead of responding, she may not want to spend time with me, but, but we're still united in marriage. And my sin doesn't make God turn his back and walk away. And my sin doesn't make God put his invisible glasses, because he has 20-20 vision, we all know that. It doesn't make him put his glasses on the end of his nose and look down at me like, I can't believe you did that, Michael. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And I thought this morning, I, 
it's been 22 years now since God set me free after a lot of counseling work and a lot of spiritual direction. But it's been 22 years since the Lord set me free from sexual compulsion and addiction. And I haven't driven down Santa Fe Road for a long time and thought about this, but there's an adult bookstore that was, it's no longer there. It's basically Costco paved over it, praise God. For once, Costco, you know, is doing a good thing. But just up the street, there's an adult bookstore that I used to go to and engage in sexual immorality. I mean, I was an addict, but there's no way around and there's no excuse that it was sexual immorality and adultery. And you know what? The reality of that I was created for union with God and that, that union with Christ is not something I need to attain. The miracle of the gospel and the miracle of the incarnation when in John 1.14 it says that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's a miracle. But there's even a greater miracle than that and that's the indwelling presence of Christ. Which means that while I was in those video booths, while I was driving up and down certain streets under the influence of alcohol, operating a vehicle while I was trying to numb my pain and my shame, Jesus was with me in my darkest moments. And that is not a truth that will free you to sin. That is a truth that will free you to worship. It's a truth that will not lead to greater shame. It's a truth that will lead to greater gratitude. Where do you get that in Scripture? Romans chapter 2, verse 4. For it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Not just the kindness who goes, well... I guess I forgive you because I did that thing 2,000 years ago, doggone it on the cross, and so, you know, I'm, I'm good, I'll forgive you. No, the God who dwells inside of me, the God who suffers and whose heart breaks as my own broken heart is turning to things that can't give me life. God sees the end from the beginning he doesn't see us in our sins. He sees us who we already are and who we one day will be. Union with God is something we are created for. Union with God is not something that we must attain or work up. It's something that we fall back on. It's something that we fall into. It's something that we enter into. And that's my third point, is that we become grounded in union with God through attentiveness attentiveness. I think a lot because I used to be a youth minister and I've always had a heart for discipleship and I think a lot about if I was to design a discipleship program for people, what would that look like? And for a long time I thought about, well, if I were to design a discipleship program, like I'm not doing that. That would be some point in the future. And then I thought, well, I'm a licensed professional counselor and I'm a Christian and I sit with people all the time talking about their inner life and their brokenness and how to, how to flourish, how to become something other than they are, how to grow. I am discipling people. I caught myself in my own small definition of discipleship as opposed to an expansive definition of what does it mean when I'm here and I'm broken or I'm stuck or I need guidance. What does it mean to follow Jesus with the plan that he has for my life? How I answered that question, what I would do with people, is help people to become attentive. And attentive to three things. And I'm going to try to give you some scripture for this, because it's always a good idea to reference scripture when you're speaking at a seminary. 
Number one, attentive to one's own heart. Now, if you go in a bad direction with this, Christians oftentimes say, well, paying attention to your inner life just leads to morbid introspection. Paying attention to your other life just leads to self-absorption. Paying attention to your inner life just puts the focus on you. And I would say exactly the opposite, especially if you have a friend of your soul or someone who's trained to help you do that. People who don't pay attention to their inner life, and I couldn't think of any potential public figures that might be running for president. It could be either or right now, but people who don't pay attention to their inner life, they tend to be people that just bulldoze their way through their life or they're reacting to their unmet needs or, or somehow their unexamined life leads to relational damage. Psalm 42 as the deer panteth for the water. Come on, join in. So my soul panteth after thee. Warm, fuzzy, kumbaya song, right? No, I've studied Hebrew. Here's what the actual transliteration, I actually haven't studied Hebrew, but the actual transliteration of that psalm and the song is, as the dehydrated dying animal goes through the desert, God, that's how my soul, I guess this isn't a very happy song, is it? We should probably sing a Chris Tomlin song on Sunday morning. David says, God, here's what my soul is like in this, in this, this journal entry, this poem that he says, my soul is like a dehydrated animal in a place where there's nothing to find to satisfy my soul. And, and why? Well, Here's the context. I remember I used to go with the multitudes in procession to the temple. I was in fellowship with these people, and then there's been a church split. That's conjecture, but there's been some kind of break and loss of going to the temple with the multitudes and in procession. And here's what the psalmist says. He says, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? I think in verse 5, and then he talks a little bit more about this inner state, and then he says a second time in Psalm 42, and then he says the exact same phrase in Psalm 43, which many people believe were joined as one psalm at one point, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? I'd like to think that for David, or not David, the son of Korah, I believe, wrote, wrote the psalm, um, I'd like to think that he didn't have his quill pen and his sheepskin journal and he just wrote that in a moment. I'd like to believe that that psalm came out of a season for him where he was wrestling with pain and loss and grief and he was crying out to God, my, my soul is downcast, my soul is disturbed and wrestling with that thought and maybe he went out into the desert and sat on a rock and looked up at the stars and, and sang songs and tended some sheep. And then he said the second part, yet I will put my hope in God. See, the depth of our relationship with God is going to be directly correlated to the depth at which you enter into your own soul. And Richard, who came to me and said, I don't know God, on one level loved God and was trying through his whole life to glorify him, but he had never entered in 60 years into the reality of his own soul. He had never thought about his thirsts that Jesus said, if you're thirsty. He had no idea that he was thirsty, much less the fact that he thirsted for attention and affection and affirmation and acceptance and security, significance and satisfaction. He was literally out of touch with his inner world. And through our conversations, he began to wake up 
He began to come alive. He began to flourish. And interestingly, his ministry began to look very different for the next several years. For him, the phrase became, and if you're looking for a title for this sermon, or this talk, it's called Less is More. I'm only 52, so I'm just on the verge of being an old guy, but I did wear my old guy sweater today. And one of the things that I'm more and more convinced of in the spiritual life is that less is more. Less is more. See, I believe that God honors the passion of the 23-year-old me on my knees, on the deck, under the stars with my friend Peter, crying out, God, use us. Let our lives be glorifying to you. I think he goes, that's awesome. That's awesome. It's like yesterday, my, my 18 and a half year old son, who um, started his first day of full-time work yesterday. He's had a whole bunch of, of part-time jobs. He doesn't even know this, but at 6 in the morning, um, he got up, which is really, really, really early for him. He's a rock-climbing, snowboarding hippie with long blonde hair and tattoos, and 6.30 in the morning is, is, is really early, trust me. I made him breakfast, and at 6.45, he left the house, and uh, he walked out the garage, put the garage door down, I opened up the door, and I just watched him go down the driveway and get in his car and drive away. And I felt such incredible pride for him because he's had a tough year and a half. Um, he's, he's come back to Jesus in a really deep way. But just that sense of, this is my son, and, and he's becoming a man, and he's going off to work. I believe that that's the pride and the passion and the affection that our Father has for us. When we're down on our knees and we cry out, God, I want to glorify you, and I want to know you. But I also believe that the wisdom of the Father has right alongside that a very kind, no harsh sense of just wait, just wait. That passion can't be sustained. You'll become weary or proud. And I don't want you to be weary. And pride stands in the way of us. But as you grow older, you're going to realize that less is more. That less is more. We become attentive to our inner lives. Like, like the author of Psalm 42 who said, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? I think that the, the book of Psalms, and, and a lot of other scripture too, but in particular the book of Psalms, is this dialectic. And I had to use that word today because I don't know what it means, but it's being used everywhere. And uh, it just is a very impressive academic word. It's this... It's this uh, tension or back and forth between the psalmist's attentiveness to his own heart and attentiveness to the heart of God. And people who are just attentive to their own heart do become self-absorbed. And people that are just attentive to the heart of God can become shallow and always need an external experience that they're looking to fill them up where you become addicted to experience. And you become addicted to something on the outside instead of grounded on what's on the inside, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let's not fish for minnows while standing on the back of a whale. Let's tap into the whale. And so being attentive to God's heart and being attentive to our heart is a reversal of the fall. 
My ministry is called Restoring the Soul. And all restoration, which means us being brought back to, and then some, the fullness of Genesis 1 and 2, the restoration and the making new of all things that were lost. How does that happen? It happens on two levels. Because the original deception from the serpent in the garden was a lie about God. Did God really say? In other words, you can't trust Him and a lie about man and woman you won't surely die. In other words, you can perform, you can get knowledge, you can grasp for something that will be life-giving, and you can be like God and you don't need God. The original lie, a lie about God and a lie about us. Attentiveness to our own hearts allows us to have the truth of Scripture and the truth of how God made us, the truth of Imago Dei, the truth of the new covenant that we no longer have hearts that are desperately wicked, but hearts that have turned from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And our hearts are good because they're the dwelling place of Christ. That truth seeps in. And the truth about God, that He's not just good, that He's not just trustworthy, but He's better than we could ever imagine. And He's working even in brokenness in a way that is absolutely glorious. Attentiveness to our own hearts and attentiveness to God's heart, allows our soul to rest. Because when we see God's heart, we're no longer down on our knees saying, I want to glorify you. When we see God's heart as it really is, we exhale. I don't have to fulfill the commands. I, I, I don't have to be perfect I don't have to hide the ugly parts of me. I don't have anything to prove. I don't have to give a dynamic talk this morning to have a sense of validity and worth. When we see God's heart, our own heart becomes free. I want to close with two verses. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. And it's interesting that this verse starts with this phrase referring to God as the Almighty. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust. In repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust. If you've ever read the other 29 chapters of Isaiah that precede this, you know that there's a lot of God talking to Israel saying, Guys, you're rebellious. Guys, you're idolatrous. Guys and girls, you are, um, you're, you're, you're adulterous. Your hearts are wayward. In Isaiah 1, he even says, your, your righteous acts stink in my nostrils. And now he's saying, come back to me, but I don't want to see your heroic spirituality. I don't want to see your awesome obedience. I don't want to see your adherence to the law. Come back in quietness and trust. Trust my heart. In quietness and trust. And then there is a comma. But you would have none of it. He's saying to the people of God, the opportunity here is for you to be able to be free, to not have to make up for anything. Come back to me. But you would have none of it. Brothers and sisters, we have a tendency that is, that is part of what we've inherited from from Adam and Eve, we have a tendency to perform, to do, as opposed to rest in the love of God and the grace of God and the good news of the gospel. You've all heard this verse. I believe that this is the hardest command in the Bible for me to obey. Psalm 46, verse 10. 
Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. And listen to the next part that you oftentimes don't see on the little crocheted plaque at Mardell or the Family Christian Bookstore. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Do you see how glorifying God happens? Being still and knowing that He's God. And here's another Hebrew paraphrase that you're only going to get here from me, the guy that's not studied Hebrew. Here's the paraphrase of be still and know that I'm God. It's God saying to you and to me, I've got this. I've got this. Please remember three words this morning as I close and as the worship team begins. Love has you. Love has you. In Jesus' name, may his shalom be upon you. Amen. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com.